Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with a gentleman who was not only a part of the D&D game at work, he was the origin of the D&D game at work. Derek Stutzman, pleasure to have you on for a start. Thanks for having me, Tom. For folks listening in, you'd been at my employer, let's just call it Netflix, let's give it a code name, for about two months, I think, before the D&D game. Is that right? I think that's about right. And through general conversation, it was established that you'd never played Dungeons & Dragons previously. Correct. I actually owned it as a kid. I got it for Christmas one year, but Mm. I couldn't find anyone in my neighborhood willing to play it. Gosh. Well, if I'd heard that sorrowful story, we probably would have started even faster. But for me, <laughs> for me, Dungeons and Dragons was just a thing that I did from probably, I want to say five, but it was probably close to seven through to probably when I was about 15 or 16. It was a large portion of my childhood. And the thought that you had never played a D&D game, for me personally, I mean, I don't think, I don't think at the time I owned, I might have owned some of the original edition books. But the first thing I thought was, I've got to get the most up-to-date rules because we've got a, a group. So to describe the work group, there was on average probably six to eight players a game, right? Yeah, that's about right, give or take. And then sometimes I mean, we got to a larger group. When it got to about 10, it was kind of unmanageable. And I would kind of move my vision between the various players. And when people started getting their phones out and I started rolling, it was the wrong number. So... We moved to 5th edition, which was new for me. I read the 5th edition rule book cover to cover, read the various bits and pieces, and then thought, okay, I could play it like 5th edition, or I could play it like the way I used to play D&D. So you probably don't know this, or maybe you do, maybe I said it explicitly at the time, but I decided to play the game very much based on the way I would have historically played D&D with the updated rules. And the big thing for me was narrative. And not just narrative associated with like storytelling, what have you, but just associated with each game I spent probably about two hours preparing for and framed it around various objectives, various ideas, but mainly just associated with giving the players as much freedom as possible. Can you talk a little bit about like coming to the D&D game? Because I know while we were playing D&D, you found another game plus an online game as well. So... Obviously, something had been sparked in the intro game, or maybe you just thought you could find a better GM elsewhere. But can you tell me about the experiences? (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Basically, what happened with that is after getting into your D&D game, I I have a a very good friend in the role-playing space. His name is Justin Achille, and he's done a bunch of role-playing games for White Wolf and things like that Mm -hmm. in the past. But it was always one of those things that we didn't have a shared interest in because Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, he was in that world and I wasn't. And so once I kind of got into this world and was telling him about it, he was like, hey, I've been wanting to run an online game. And, and so some of our mutual friends and, and, uh, and I got together and played with him for a little bit. Mm. I had a lot of spare time when I was out there because I was living separately <laughs> from my wife. So I was looking for things to do. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the origin of the D&D game was based on a first edition module. And the idea was that there was a mad scientist that was building – an army. Now, this, it was lizard men. I could never have the lizard men in my game. So they were greenskins. They were goblinoids from the fungus up, small goblins through to larger orcs. And the trajectory was that there was a fountain that one, there'd been some transaction. And one of the magic users, who I think was the 
person who was actually instigating the start of the adventure, you all met at a pub, was to send you to find this fountain that the evil magic user who was creating this army of greenskins had. That was the original idea, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That was our original quest. I don't believe we ever actually completed that quest. No. Historically, the way I see these games is very much like a soap opera. So what you do is you put a, you know, you put a goal in for the players and then you put many obstacles in the way of the players reaching that goal to the point where oftentimes the goal is never actually reached. And I think there were various quests within the game that were completed to some level of satisfaction. That's true. That is true. One of my favorites was the Valley of the Dragons, where there was a kind of protected valley with very powerful dragons held within it. And there was some agreement between the dragons and the humans that maintained the valley. The dragons got all the wealth they wanted, all the riches, what have you. But they would live in peace in this valley. And the humans had some rule where they were basically using it like a um, like a Disneyland, basically. <laughs> Yeah. Where people would come and watch the dragons and all this kind of stuff. And I think somewhere through that, the party had the view that what they wanted to do was either slay or free dragons. I can't remember. I think they wanted to free <laughs> some of the dragons. Do you remember that? I, I can't remember either which way we went. I, you know, I'm, I'm aging and I've slept since we played. But um, <laughs> I, I recall there being a lot of uh, discussion around whether you know, we should kill the dragons or whether we should free them. Hmm. It was a, a point of contention. And someone was saying that uh, specific types of dragons are good and you don't want to attack them. Uh, you know, m- my memory fails me on the specifics. From a GM perspective. Alcohol was involved as well. It was. During- yes, it, it, was, it was. From a GM perspective, the thing that interested me was the notion of dragon mind control, which is very, in- it's difficult to play. And I think it was one of the few points of frustration that I had through the game was that some of the players were taking the dragon mind control very seriously, but you weren't taking the dragon mind control very seriously. So I had to kind of perturb your character a little bit to allow for the (laughs) dragon mind control. Do you remember that particular incident? I don't. Please refresh my memory. So there was some... The nature is that there were certain dragons there that were good dragons, but part of their goodness also meant they controlled the minds of humans around them. And that's very difficult to play in a standard role-playing setting, because obviously you want to maximize the character's perception of free will. And I think some of the ca- other players were getting into the spirit of that. But I seem to recall that you refused to get into the spirit of that. So I had to kind of slightly penalize you in a variety of punitive ways for you to get into the dragon mind control, um, you know, mind space. But another favorite, I mean, you were a thief in the game, right? I was. I was a thief, and I was very highly profit-motivated. That mm. was the way I was role-playing that character, mm. was that you know, I, was, I didn't care a whole lot about the folks I was partying with uh, unless they could bring me profits. The character was represented with a beautiful Kev Adams' Otherworlds Adventurers miniature, um, which oh, I've, actually, perfect. I've gotten a couple more of them. Part of the end of the game, and I'll tell you why I'm kicking myself about part of this, was giving all the miniatures to all the players. So literally dividing up all the orcs and other things and all the dwarves and passing them onto the players. So each player had a good number of miniatures. And I know for a fact, certainly Jason, who we played with, still keeps his miniatures, you know, in the office as a token of the game. The dwarves, there was a period of time where the game became more successful than I had anticipated it would. 
And there were a series of floater characters that were militarized dwarves. I'm not sure if you remember them characterfully. But those miniatures came from a Kickstarter, and I really like those miniatures. You had a, I think it was a female dwarf that was your on again, off again, you know, romantic interest for a short period of time. It was mysteriously always non-play character played. But the dwarves... There was some flirtation with that yeah. character, but we never really engaged. No. I felt weird about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In a work setting, these things are always difficult. Um, but those dwarf miniatures that I passed on to all, all my players so devotedly at the end don't exist anymore. They were once off. I contacted the miniature manufacturer following. They're like, meh, we lost the molds for those. Um, you might be able to get half of them. Not now, maybe sometime in the future. So some of those miniatures were once off miniatures, which I kind of think back about, you know, they were so characterful. So what I did there was I think there were a dozen dwarves that I had as, as floating characters, which if someone dropped in because this was a work game and people dropped in periodically, I would have, you know, one of 12 dwarf characters that I pass on to them and a couple of people that would drop in on a regular basis. Like for example, our, our coworker Ray. He picked up one of those dwarf characters and that just became his character. But the notion of militarism was something that I wanted to play with through this game. There's a problem in D&D, which you may or may not have encountered, but as, as the characters level up, the their abilities to fight standard, you know, entry-level creatures gets ridiculous. You know, literally sneeze, you kill the ogre, what have you. So that was a difficulty. And I had this notion of levels of militarism amongst the orcs in particular, where you would get more and more militarized orcs and they would have certain different abilities. Certainly the, the uh, health would be greater um, as they became more militarized, in part relating to armor and various other things. But what I tried to make sure was that the ability for, I mean, you move from like level one to, did we get up to level 10? I think we were up to level six for most of the characters. I think I got to five or six. Yeah. And for folks listening, and this was an 18-month-long game, which we would typically play either once a month or every other week. Through some periods, we played every other week. For some periods, we played once a month. But it was quite a, it was quite an event. I mean, it's interesting actually looking back at this because basically almost everyone on our team of maybe, what, 13-odd people participated in at least one game. And many people participated in multiple games. Can you talk a little bit about uh, it, camaraderie and the catharsis? I mean, just having it uh, as a thing after work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, you know, most of us had to commute to various places after work, and it just wasn't conducive to getting together and hanging out outside of work unless there was a, you know, an event during work hours. And so having something that was at the office really kind of gave everybody a chance to get together and hang out. And I definitely think that it helped establish relationships with folks in a way that I wouldn't have just from working with them only. Hmm. So it was a, definitely a very, very fun social event. One of the characters who I wanted to get involved early on was Art Webb. Now, I had done things with Art Webb since about 2009. So Art Webb for me was a long-standing electronic correspondent person who I'd spoken to on the phone many times, worked with on various projects, but never actually kind of physically co-located. As it happens, about six months before the D&D game, he moved to California to start working at, uh, at Apple. And I had been heavily involved with this move over, but through the nature of the stuff that I do and the stuff that he did, we had no 
intersectional points until the D&D game came out. I'm not sure, was he, did he start when the game started or did he come a few games in? I can't remember. I, I want to say he was there for the first game. Yeah. That, that I, I seem to case. remember that. Yeah, and and you know what a neat guy. I you know that's that's I wouldn't have met him had you not pulled the the game together and invited him to it, and I'm glad that I did. Yeah, when I reflected this this D and D game at work created two fully formed podcasts, a variety of spin off games as well, and motivated certainly um, a few in our group. I'm thinking here specifically about Sean to you know start their own. Games certainly, you know, he makes miniatures now and stuff like that. A lot of painting and stuff like that. So for me, it was really fascinating. And art web, because I'd worked with various people at art new, the ability to start him starting the interaction provided me starting another podcast after hours called Attic Aficionados and really motivated, I think, the whole group actually, not just art specifically, the creation of My Rules Are Better in the vein that uh, there were certain nuances so in parallel to this, I should point out, I watched a lot of YouTube associated with Games Master culture in the US in particular, but just Games Master style and culture. And I realized that a lot of the techniques that I had were different, very different than the way games were played here. Our coworker John, for example, was a good example of someone who played D&D historically, but had never played with a GM that had the kinds of things that I liked GMing with. So he came to it with a lot of kind of heavy rules perception, notions of rules and how he played the character. But then I think he realized somewhere through that I was not a rules lawyer with capacity as well. <laughs> My interest was getting everyone involved, creating a story, creating problems that required active problem solving spaces. I mean, some of the places that were created. So there was a, an area which was a huge cavern that you guys discovered somewhere through your adventure that was like a, it was basically like a, a dwarf retirement community or dwarven infirmary at some stage, but all the dwarves had died and all the people that were maintaining the dwarves had died and had kind of grown up. But in that process, it was a maze because you had to kind of, you were in this environment. It was very well suited for dwarves, but not very well suited for the adventurers. It was a relatively large space. And you had to find your way out of the space. And I think what was interesting in creating that was I knew that the players would not send, I mean, they would find dwarf bones and things like that. But the notion that they were actually in a tomb that they had to find an escape from, I wasn't going to specifically give them as the games master. That was something for them to discover. Do you remember the dwarf infirmary part? I do remember the Dwarf Infirmary. I don't remember picking up that it was a tomb, though. Mm. Did you ever actually come out and, and reveal that? No. I think what I tried to reveal was it was associated with, like, okay, let's explore this space. Let's explore this space some more. Let's explore this space some more. Let's explore this space some more. Okay, we're done exploring this right, space. Right. We haven't killed anything. What the hell's going on here? And then, thankfully, I think a couple of you kind of cottoned on to the fact that there had to be some exit. There had to be some way out. And I think soon after the way out was one of your favorite noted things, the, the water slides within the cavern, which I thought was a, an added bonus to give you after you'd spent, probably it was just a single game, but it was a very labored game, you know, mapping out this dwarf infirmary and trying to work out how to actually escape from it. 
I remember the water slides being a particular delight. I remember asking you specifically, are they fun? And you said, yes, they are quite fun. And I'm like, hooray, hooray. Yes. So, I mean, <laughs> the donkey is a returning theme. Oh, that you the come to. donkey, the damn donkey. Introduce the donkey. So, so okay. Uh, we had, uh, uh, we, we cleared out of town and there were a bunch of riches in, in a church and I'm cleaned up. I got a bunch of golden plates and goblets, and I was feeling pretty flush. You did and get food I had poison to... through the process as well, right? Someone had... We all did. We made yeah. sandwiches that made us sick. That is true. <laughs> but um, aside from that, I had riches, and that was my character's goal. So I had more riches than I could carry, and we strapped some of them to a pack donkey to carry them. And the donkey died at some point and was resurrected as a zombie, and then he ended up floating down a river with all of my riches. And I was very despondent about that. In fact, I'm still bitter about that. <laughs> and <laughs> why don't you talk to what was going through your head when you crafted all that? Okay, so let's start with there's a character here who now at the time you had a dog called Abby. But I had this view that I was going to call all the dwarves after Welsh towns. And there's a town in Wales called Aberystwyth. In fact, all the dwarves were with Welsh town names, and most of the humans were with were English town names, but they were all eccentric because no one's ever heard of Aberystwyth outside of Wales. Anyway, Aberystwyth was a, a war magic user, primarily. He was part of this dwarf fraternity of dwarven warriors that had been all in kind of ranked up armed units. And while he was a, while he was a military man, the thing he used to cast was fireball. And he loved casting fireballs. About 60% of them worked out the way he planned, but it was a thing of amusement and beauty for him. And I think maybe outside, if, if it had been a decade earlier, I would have played on his kind of pipe-smoking antics as well, but I didn't really want to play on that in the work environment. Anyway, so Aberystwyth was a character who really, he was kind of irascible. He didn't really like doing a lot of things, but when the donkey died the first time, Aberystwyth had tens of spells he could have cast at any given time. But all he wanted to cast was Fireball. So he had the ability to reincarnate the donkey. And I think for some reason, maybe because he'd saved his life or something like that, he decided to reincarnate your donkey so it was a zombie donkey. The difference between a zombie donkey and a real donkey really is not that great in the game, aside from the fact that this is now an undead donkey. It can probably go a lot further with a lot less hay. Anyway, so my thought through this was, again, let's throw obstacles in. Now, your joy, your raw joy is an emotion that permeated the entire group. I thought, okay, this is going to be relatively... And you weren't very protective of the donkey, which I couldn't understand at the time. I so, didn't think I had to be. We had the whole crew, you know, the stuff's packed on the donkey. You know, I don't need to worry about him. Fair enough. As typically happened, walking for some length of time, gang of orcs. My recollection was it wasn't a particularly big gang of orcs, and most of them were smaller greenskins. This was still relatively early in the game. And there was running water, there was a, I think maybe a bridge or a series, I think it was a series of fords that you had to cross the running water. And for whatever reason, perhaps, as I would assert, because it wasn't actually that important, no one paid much attention to the donkey. And through legitimate roles, the donkey ended up being carried off. Now, because people were battling at the time and it was outside the distance, and I think my recollection is Artweb was probably closest to the donkey and could have made a jump for it, but he was doing his own thing. Everyone was playing their own character. No one really cared about the donkey aside from you. And you were comically 
too far away from the donkey to actually do anything. <laughs> it's true. No one cared about the donkey but me because it was my stuff strapped to the donkey. Exactly. As it floated on down the, uh, the river. Yes. Thought- the whole point of my adventure was to collect all this loot and I'm watching it go down the river. Yes. With no way to get it. Well, then you have our co-worker, Meryl. And <laughs> my view with regard, look, Meryl, I think, completely, and I, we, we have a few co-workers who have their own particular, like, cognitive nuances. Meryl realized that this was, she, she had this perspective, I think, where this was clearly a game for her. And she realized that once she realized that there were no rules in the game, formal rules, she could propose outlandish ideas and I would cr- have to grant some probability for this, these outlandish ideas to occur. Can you describe, why don't you describe the circumstances first and then I'll describe my thinking as a GM associated with the circumstances. Sure. So I, I thought Meryl was phenomenal in the game. She was absolutely a blast to play with. I remember she just randomly said, oh, I found some stones and, you know, polished them up or something. And they have some kind of powers or something to that effect. And and you allowed it. Well, I gave her a the, series of dice rolls. Now, let's okay. be clear here. The stones had Everything no power is, whatsoever. Okay. She created some gambling game, which she spelled out the rules for, which I allowed the rules for. And you agreed to gamble with this game where she had created the rules purely to remove your possessions from your person. I, no, no, no. That, that's not how I remember it, which, which could be wrong, okay, to be completely honest. Let's but go through your relationship. What I remember is we were talking about the Dragon Scale armor. Yes. You had set us up to buy Dragon Scale armor, which took three weeks to make. Yes. And um, we were, it was going to cost a lot of money as well. And I had a lot of money because I had all this loot. And so two of the folks in the party needed it. And we were talking about having, and you mentioned that it was very valuable. This dragon scale armor was very valuable. Certainly. So I was proposing that we make three sets and we sell off the third set. And so I was, and I was trying to get everyone to chip in on an investment on this. Mm. And somehow Meryl managed to bamboozle me into fronting the whole bill. As I recall. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? It was down to a Magic Rocks game, where the rocks didn't actually have any magic, you just had to trust Meryl in playing the game. And that was what it, from my recollection anyway, that's what it came down to. Meryl said, I've got these Magic Rocks, here's what they do. And I said, okay, well, (laughs) here's the probability associated with it. Now, my view was, magic, let's talk a little bit about magic in the game. Now, magic in D&D has a very defined purpose. It has a very defined existence. And as a GM, when you create your universes, you can really define what magic can do within these universes. I typically prefer universes where magic is relatively minor. And if you encounter magic users in the games, Aberystwyth is a good example, they will typically have well-learned magic that they do frequently, but their breadth of knowledge of magic is not particularly good. And wherever possible in a game, I will have magic as something which is actually more associated with cunning. Now, Meryl came to this thing with six pints of cunning. She came to this thing with a perspective that what she was going to do quite categorically was basically fleece you. <laughs> and part of that was beautifully concocted in this notion of the magic stones, where she created a gambling game. I think within three games, she had basically won over you. Now, I don't, the dragon skin armor was an interesting thing. Let's talk about that just as a... As sure. a 
So part of this game was associated with exposing you to cliches. Have you seen the movie 1917? I have not. Okay. 1917 is a good example of how I play Dungeons and Dragons. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but basically you have two British soldiers against the German front line in the First World War. Impossible odds. Just completely impossible odds. But the way in which the film is constructed, the way in which the story is constructed, you weave your way through various vignettes where they hit peril at various points in the story, but they're not under peril for the entire time. My view with regards to the early part of the game, at least, was to create these vignettes of peril to weave you through the vignettes of peril, you being the collective group, but also to give the ability for you to see various aspects of D&D gameplay. So we did wilderness, we did caverns. I think I don't really, we did kind of catacombs. We did dungeons, basically. But the big thing was dragons. Like, how was I going to work dragons into this thing? And part of it was dragon miniatures are really unbelievably expensive. And I had by chance a, I went to Monterey with my wife and we were in one of the little, you know, bric-a-brac shops in Monterey. And I saw three dragons, two small ones and a large dragon. And the small dragons were like nine bucks each. And the large dragon was like 19 bucks. They don't know the value of these dragons. This is amazing. (laughs) Bought the dragons, scrolled them away. I thought, okay, now I have three dragons that I can put into this game. The way dragons exist in, again, to the gym's persuasion, you can do a variety of things with dragons. Oftentimes, I like the idea that dragons are just at the same foibles of humans, only more so. But with this dragon, I think was the first dragon that you guys encountered. It was really more a chance encounter than anything. And at the time, you had two very young goblins. I mean, basically just sprouted out of the mushroom. And these guys were perilously close to either being killed or committing suicide on repeated bases. One of them, I think, you used basically to detect traps, and he was severely skewered and ultimately died. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) The second one, basically, I think seemed to be... The peril of the catacombs was that the catacombs were not stable in any way. So there were a couple of situations where the party was basically cut in half by a catacomb collapse. And through those catacombs, I think one of the parties, one of the halves of the parties, ended up finding this dragon just by chance on a pile of, of, you know, rocks as it was. Maybe if you dug under the rocks, you might have found other things, but you didn't. So, pile of rocks. Oh! And <laughs> once you had slain the dragon, the real value of the dragon was, and now, again, dragon skin is typically encrusted with jewels and gold and other things, but everyone was just happy with the dragon skin. You then had to transport the dragon skin. I think the donkey, while still alive, was useful for that. And you got to a town, and you've got to realize that Aberystwyth here, Aberystwyth was probably the strongest non-player character. He guided you. There was another, um, there was a, uh, was it Wilmslow? Wilmslow was the other wizard that you had encounters with. Aberystwyth was the dwarf wizard. There was yeah, one other character. Aberystwyth was the one that really bonded with the team, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, it was played very, very well. He was, as you mentioned earlier, he was irascible. He was very uh, short tempered with us and would fuss at us when we were doing stupid things, which was endearing. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up calling him Abby out of endearment mm. because like we connected with this NPC. Mm. 
And certainly I think he was probably the origin of the dragon armor. It was funny having a character who basically was like the director of the mini stories. And yeah. I felt in part that I was perhaps abusing that role. That was one of the benefits of having the 12 kind of war dwarves turn up as well. And I think for a period of time, Everest was disappeared. And the other, the human uh, magic user, who I think his name was Wilmslow. There was another one whose name escapes me. Anyway, eventually Wilmslow was killed, I think. And I seem to recall there was some arc where, and eventually Abby, I think, left you for good and you were just left by yourselves. Because I don't think Abby was part of the Dragon Valley adventure. He split off by that point. He was not. There was another, I believe it was a dwarf. Mm. And you said that he was kind of known for being a lure for dragons. Mm. And he Ah. was sort of, he made his living uh, doing these types of activities. Gordon the Gnome. Yes. Gordon the Gnome. Yes, he was. So he was one. Another one of these miniatures that no longer exists, unfortunately. I think you could find him at small numbers on Amazon if you do the right word search. I think there are a few that still exist. He was a gnome with a shovel and a bucket, and he was, as you say, professional dragon's bait. That was his role. He was an interesting character because no one really talked to him. He was there almost as a kind of comedic tool, but <laughs> towards. Towards the end, uh, when I think someone realized that he was actually substantially mechanical, like he'd been damaged sufficiently and he just worked either with a, probably with a wizard to make him, you know, almost like a cross between, I guess, the Terminator and Robocop, but in gnome, you know, with the appearance of a garden gnome, basically. And he was quite a character, but he was eventually killed as well. I seem to recall maybe, yeah. But I, I don't think Gordon was around for the Valley. The Valley of the Dragons was a very specific part of the game because there were evil humans or humans that were working against you. And there were a series of miniatures. I seem to remember they were kind of armoured and a few of them had bows that were clearly like militarised humans that were against you in some fashion. But, yeah, the dynamics of that was mainly associated with the chase. That was something that I wore. And I seem to recall there was a cloak of invisibility that came in there, I seem to recall. Like some of you stayed invisible to get close to the humans and these kind of things. But yeah, what were your memories of that period? Um, So I remember the Valley of the Dragons, you know, with a dome over it that was protecting them. And we were trying to find a way in at one point. That was was the period when we had all the contention about whether we wanted to kill a dragon or not. Um, I, I can't remember much more about that particular period. I'm sorry. Mm. It was interesting because there was kind of a, an ebb and flow of people that could attend early on, people that attend in the middle, people that attend at the end. And then, mm-hmm. so Meryl, as we described, was just a single-time attendee, and there were a few of those folk that, that stopped in as well. But what early on, we had Ron, the ranger who liked to set fire to things, which <laughs> occurred very early on, and this was the wilderness area this was kind of very much grass fires very much the plane working your way towards ultimately the area that you never got to the pyramid of of green skins that you never arrived at but that was an interesting definitional thing lots of spiders early on um very much in the kind of framing of first level characters i mean it's interesting have you aside from my game you've played two other games or have you played more D&D games. Than uh, just those two. One other game. One, oh, but one you other played game. And, and 
Uh, oh, no, two other games, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. played Sean's game and I played Justin's mm. game. Justin's game was off of a uh, just a canned module. Mm. And Sean's game was his own creation, to my knowledge. Mm. What was your... Did you start as a first-level character and make your way to some other level? Or were you very much stuck in a, in a level range with both these games? Oh, no, it was a first level on all those games. Okay, interesting. So you have a sense of what the first-level game is like versus the fifth-level game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I, when you're first level, it's difficult to get anything meaningful done. You don't have a lot of skills yet, but it's uh, it's more about feeling out your party and getting the vibe of the whole, what's the vibe of this game going to be? You mm. know, what's what are the interactions going to be and how do people play off of each other? Is it a serious uh, rules fest or is it more loose? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. I recall the first interaction when the first dragon interaction cumulatively that was probably the most risky battle that you guys had encountered initially. And I remember leading into that, there were a lot of battles that were very heavily stacked in your favor. And then I started playing with those concepts more. Unfortunately, you're all leveling up to a rate where aside from literally facing an army, which I had considered at one stage, you didn't really have a lot of options. I mean, a lot of the times there were kind of six versus 20 The the dragon was the first major risk, and that was a case where it could have gone either way, basically. And I think, Mm -hmm. I seem to recall, it might have been Gordon was the sacrificial character in that light, but that was a very tight battle, that first dragon encounter. And I seem to remember, like, this is the potential here for, you know, eliminating various characters. We had situations where, I mean, certainly Sean played two characters, I don't think we had any restarting based on death through that, aside from non-player character death. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody permanently died. Mm. And I I took that as, you know, you were just trying to let everybody, you know, have a good time, get used to it as a low-level character, you know, not beat anybody up too bad. But uh, presumably, I mean, in this game, like there comes a point where death is really death and you can't be resurrected. Right. I what mean, I find interesting is, I mean, certainly, so our, our manager played D and was immediately killed off when he played it as a, as a teenager, teenagers playing D and D will frequently kill either themselves or their other characters off accidentally. And, or, you know, just the purpose of the game is I think really very important here. There were times where I thought that there would be potential to, particularly more seasoned players, kill them off and have them come back as other characters. And certainly in Sean's case, he really wanted to, you know, play two characters. Mm -hmm. But it was very much framed. There were a series of things because of the work environment that I didn't really want to get into. And I didn't want it to be a sense of, and this is interesting because certainly amongst people that attended only once, they did get a sense that it was a club thing, that this was a, you know, uh, a friendly club as opposed to something which was supposed to be inclusive. And I was relatively mindful through it that there were a series of circumstances which could really badly schism the group if they were allowed to play out. I'd come to this realisation mm. through having played D&D for long periods of time and also knowing that there are certain... I mean, if you were all seasoned players, if you all came in... You know, John was a relatively seasoned player. So if you all came in at that level, Sean clearly was a very seasoned player because he went on to GM his own group. If you'd all come in at that level, then the games would have been distinctly different. 
because you had never played and a bunch of people that came in had never played or hadn't played for long periods of time. I was very mindful that the game had to be at a certain, you know, certain point. Mm-hmm. And there it was, it was almost cinematic. It was about framing, you know, various environments. And I spent a lot of time prior to the games thinking of the settings, thinking of how do I describe this? How do I talk about it? And the difficulty also is, we typically played either Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday at work. I found it was easier to play on Tuesday than it was on Wednesday, and it was really difficult to play on Thursday. In fact, the game, the final game that this thing evolved into, just playing Chaos, which was my own rule system, we played it on a Thursday. The final game was on a Thursday, much to our peril, because I had to be pulled off on work-related things, and it basically, you know, killed the last game. One of the things I loved about D&D, doing it as a boy, was keeping all the numbers in my head and writing very little of it down. And I don't use GM screens. I don't do any of that kind of stuff either. Do you get a sense? I mean, obviously, if you're playing with someone online, you don't get a sense of how they play. Did you get a sense with Sean that he played the games distinctly differently? Did he have GM screens? Or, mm. So um, Sean didn't have GM screens, but let me just speak a bit to your presentation because it was very clear how much work you put into each session before it happened. And I want to go on record here on the podcast and say thank you for doing that. Um, you brought all kinds of imagination to it. You had pre preconceived uh, scenarios that you'd thought deeply about. And you brought pro- you literally bought props with your own money to have, you know, dungeon setups and things like that. And that was amazing. Um, so that was really great. Uh, Sean did a lot of that as well. He bought um, a bunch of little uh, dungeon sets that had like little torches and things like mm-hmm. that. I think that your presentation was more narrative based and his was more scenario based mm. in terms of, you know, here's where you are and here's the things that you need to do. Whereas yours was more open ended about you know, creating possibilities and letting people go and letting the party kind of find their way, if that makes sense. There's a thing about human discovery, which I think is really important. And particularly when you create a universe that has different physics and magic and all these other bits and pieces, the ability to piece together information. So, for example, the whole history of the orcs was kind of slowly discovered through the game. You learned more and more things. You saw the fungus growing. You saw literally the goblinoid creatures kind of pop out of the mushrooms. And I don't. we didn't really talk much about the progression of these small highly suicidal creatures into something that, you know, becomes an orc, basically. And maybe that wasn't even there. Similarly, all the dragon magic. I mean, the background that I like to do is usually exploring a variety of different levels to this thing, different layers. And I have a very clear and coherent sense of, you know, magic items, you know, how the various, you know, the origin of various races within the environment the history of, um, you know, the dwarves, the elves, the orcs in the environment, and also geographically, the difficulty I had doing it at work was I have certain things that I can describe easily, but remembering place names and maps, and I started with very detailed maps that I drew, and I just thought, this is ridiculous. I need broad sketches because none of, none of the players are going to adhere to any of these maps. So a lot of it was very sketch-oriented with a view that I wanted to create a whole experience, but with, as you say, the freedom for people to move out of that experience relatively easily. Did we ever take a turn that you weren't prepared for where you had to call an audible and basically make things up? 
once you have a sense of a universe, so it's a bit like, I know San Jose as a place, right? I spent a long period of time, you know, every aspect of this thing associated with like where people are murdered, the street gangs, the police force, the mayor, the local council member. These are characters that I have encountered and experienced and I have various levels, which means I can quite coherently create San Jose as a place with interactive things based on spending hours in the councilman's presence, right? So my view with regards to these games is you'd need to be on the edge of a universe for me to be outside the realm of possibilities. To say I spent a few hours each game planning the game doesn't really account for all the kind of dream space, you know, thinking about things. I mean, my other passion is simulation and open source and programming in that space. And I spent so much of my time in that space just thinking about things. The game was very much like that. The short answer is no, no one ever did. Uh, what I found with Meryl in particular was that she was really interested in pushing those boundaries. But none of none of the regular players were really that interested in pushing the boundaries. Like none of you wanted to create a wormhole. One of the more interesting things that happened was I had to describe the way the orcs felt magic versus the way the humans felt magic. So the orc possessed weapons where they had magic were basically psychedelic experiences for the humans. And I thought long and hard about that. These are, these are mushroom creatures that come out of mushrooms. What are all the side effects that these mushrooms would have when they interacted with humans? You had a subtle experience with that with regards to the food poisoning incident early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We put those mushrooms in the sandwiches, right? Mm-hmm. So these are, these are the things that once you see it in this... So part of this, which may, I think I said maybe through this, for a good portion of my life, I have known about miniature manufacturers. I've known about a variety of different miniature manufacturers that make dwarves and orcs and goblins and all of various things. So the game for me was an opportunity to say Black Tree Design, Kickstarter, 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 Black Tree Design, a few early Citadel, mainly Kickstarter and Black Tree Design. Like they had the miniature ranges that I knew would fit for the category. I don't read fantasy. I read, I read rule systems rather than fantasy. When I was in my youth, I read fantasy and science fiction. Now I read rule systems like they're physics, basically. So there are so many different narratives associated with how goblins exist, how skeletons exist, how you have necromancy, all these kind of things. So for me, it was more an opportunity of just playing the rich tapestry and texture of things that I already had intimacy with. That, for me, was really very important. I don't have any means of accessing this in normal existence. My knowledge of eclectic miniature ranges means nothing to the real world. But it's something that this game was able to promote. I also feel really strongly that because it was such a unique setting, I had to make sure... I've said this, if you go back and listen, you may not go back and listen to these podcasts, but I've said it in a prior podcast. My players are the most precious commodity that I have in these games. Making a series of scenarios that will not only captivate them on a precursory level, but also intellectually involve them is something that I find really, really important. And what interested me was the distinction between the D&D game and just playing Chaos. The D&D game had a whole lot of nostalgia, a lot more narrative. The rules were there. They'd been blessed for, you know, 40 plus years. 
And that was, that appealed to a certain group of people, just like us appealed to another group of people. But yeah, I, I really think it's very important that you frame these games in a way where people realize that you're absolutely serious about this thing. And that was something that I certainly wanted to show in the game. Well, that was absolutely apparent. How, how deep is your miniature collection these days, Tom? <sighs> well, um, so when I arrived here from the UK, I had 883 miniatures and they were all pretty well, all of them actually of that number, all of them were painted. Since then, things have gone a little bit awry. I would say I probably have maybe if I said 1500, it would be wrong. I probably have about 17 to 1800 now of which I'm trying to tone it down. The main issue I have now is miniature painters. I'm having, I had real difficulty. I went through a period of time where I commissioned miniature painters that were just amazing people in terms of their painting skills, but they were artists. They weren't people that mm-hmm. were good to deal with. I now have three of these people, two of whom I'm pretty well exhausted with, one of whom I've just started a painting relationship with. And funnily enough, the fellow who I'm moving more of my fantasy stuff to is a fellow who historically sold me two incredibly highly detailed armies, but relatively small numbers of figures, I think. 40, maybe 80 figures um, each. So he's the fellow who's, who's currently wowing me with his painting. But the whole thing to me is just very strange because it's not something that I really engage with outside these podcasts or, you know, and that was one of the fun things about showing at work. You know, I know little things about these eclectic old ranges. And I mean, to be frank, lots of what is produced now is all plastic. I only have an interest in metal miniatures. Uh, and that enables me to actually dramatically reduce the potential um, of, of what could be. Um, but yeah, I probably need to count them again. It's probably more than it's probably more than seventeen hundred now. So I, I know these are a passion for you, and I know that you've you know definitely invested in having them painted beautifully. Does having this deep catalog of miniatures kind of give you the itch to create more games and do more with them? Or are you just satisfied just having them and, and looking at them occasionally? I don't look at them at all. I mean, the nature, this, really? the nature of this thing is really very deep and strange and probably requires therapy more than it requires podcasts. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I have them all packed away. It's actually really, I mean, I have painters who have said to me, we'd really love to come and see your, you know, and I'd say, well, it's actually not that easy to see everything I have. For me, it is more associated with a series of probably really very bad emotions that happened in my early childhood. It was very difficult to have miniatures when I lived in Australia. They were incredibly expensive. And they were things that I just, you know, as a small child, well, even into my teenage years, spent far too much time trying to acquire in in parallel to actually doing a lot of other stuff. I'm not in the extreme case here, though. I, I feel relatively middle of the road with regards to my miniature collecting. Um, I know of people that have more than 20,000 easily and many that have 50,000. So I'm not to an extreme and I do keep, I have strict budgets. I have strict orders. But yeah, for me, it's more about capturing. And I realized this actually through lockdown, I pulled everything out of my attic and I found the three years that interest me from 1988 through to 1991. The miniatures created through that time period, I probably have everyone that I ever interested me. Yeah, I could comfortably stop at any time, he says. But no, it is interesting <laughs> because it's not, it's not, a, it's not in any way, it's about an aesthetic thing 
I did have a really interesting experience, which I haven't told you, but I have told the listeners to this podcast. My 18th wedding anniversary was a couple of months ago, and Michelle and I were going to travel, but we couldn't. So we put our travel money together, and I gave Michelle a list of frivolous websites, and she gave me a list of, well, she gave me one frivolous website, and said, okay, buy something from this frivolous website. Michelle bought me a series, well, a medal from the Battle of Waterloo, and a series of medals from the one fellow who got the medal in the Battle of Waterloo following through to the final conflict he was part of, which was the Franco-Prussian War in uh, 1870. It is true that miniatures force me to think about things historically and explore things historically or in fantasy settings. And these medals have forced me to explore a period of kind of Napoleonic history that I had no interest in. The medals and the reading... And all these things are really, you know, it's kind of ritualized in part. But to, the ability to just have, to show that you have this knowledge in a non-threatening and, in fact, reinforcing sense that you can actually make these amazing games with these miniatures. And part of it was also past giving the miniatures to people at the end of the game. Like, there was no point in me keeping the miniatures. They had to go on to other people. I don't know if I've answered your question at all. No, you, you absolutely did. And... Just to comment on the medals that you received from Michelle, what an amazing gift and how deeply she gets you to give you <laughs> such a thoughtful gift, right? I mean, that's amazing. My mind was blown. I mean, the, the thing about it is I've historically ordered from this company for documents, which is mainly where my historical kind of collecting interests lie. Yeah. The other thing is that they came with the provenance so I now know that the medals were sold in 1943 in Belgium from the family, which was a horrible time to be in Belgium. And then they went to a, a collector in Spokane, Washington, of all places. And then they went back to the UK and then they come here. So I have the provenance of the medals as well. Now, one of the medals That's was amazing. sold off through the process. It's not, it's not the entire set of his stuff, but the Waterloo medal looks like it comes from Waterloo. Like you really. There's no question about the authenticity of that one. And the other ones kind of fit into the spectrum as well. Yeah, it was an outstanding gift. It was amazing. Very, very cool. And congratulations, 18 years. That's amazing, Believe too. Believe me. Believe me. Well, it's interesting through this this period because you realize that all these horrible metrics, like, you know, domestic violence and these kind of things, and I go to bed every night just looking at Michelle and thinking, we know we actually can <laughs> together through bad times like 18 years has de de demonstrated to us, to, to us both that you know we can actually survive these things so you know that that's amazing right um this whole COVID 19 thing has caused this lockdown business where we really can't get away from each other and i would say that you know susan and i are closer than ever through mm. this experience mm. it's um it, it's been amazing well, on that happy note, let us conclude this formal recording. Derek, I'm not sure how much I can use of any of this, but I'll put an no. edit through. It's been a real pleasure to have the chance to you, in particular, to, to reminisce on your reflections at this time. And I'm really, I'm so pleased that I was able to convey some of the D&D &D experience through this in a, you know, in a happy environment. That was something that was really very important to me to do. Well, I, I really appreciate you doing it. I, I know you started the game kind of, you know, when I brought it up, and I really appreciate that. It was a great time and definitely something that uh, I enjoyed doing. So thanks for all the time you put into it. And thank you for appearing on this podcast, Derek. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure.